Well, if you were not with us last week, we introduced the book of Daniel and set the stage for the stories that we'll, we will be exploring together over the next three months. The book begins on a depressing note for God's people. Already they had been conquered by Egypt and their king, Jehoiakim, who's mentioned in the first verse, was a puppet king put in place by Pharaoh. We're not told that story in Daniel because the mere mention of Jehoiakim's name in chapter 1, verse 1, is presumed to be enough to catch you up on where we are in Judah's history. It was a bleak time for them. And Daniel begins when they've already been conquered by Egypt, but goes on to tell the story of how things got worse from there. In the continual struggle for power in the ancient Near East, Babylon entered the world stage and defeated Egypt. And in their victory, Babylon acquired the kingdom of Judah, which was perpetually caught in the middle between these warring countries and passed back and forth between them as they conquered one another. So now no longer the property of Egypt, God's people belonged to Babylon. And Babylon was intent on stripping them of their identity, identity until they became good Babylonians. And the most active person in the first seven verses of Daniel is Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He comes and besieges Jerusalem. He takes what he wants, property and people, and he puts them in Babylon in order to possess their minds and hearts until he owns them outright. And there is no more fear of rebellion or revolution from this foreign people. In short, Nebuchadnezzar intends to eliminate God's people. And in those seven verses, the only action we see God taking is to give Nebuchadnezzar whatever he wants. While he can't rightly be accused of being absent or inactive, his actions provide little comfort. It looks like he's selling the farm in order to go do something else. He's letting Nebuchadnezzar take whatever he wants. And in the opening verses of Daniel, God appears to have given up on his people. But that read on the situation would be to disregard the prophet Jeremiah, which, which seems to kind of be the story of his life. It's an understatement to say that the prophet Jeremiah was largely disregarded in his day. It's an understatement to say that he was disregarded because he wasn't just disregarded, he was actively opposed. Jeremiah received death threats and was imprisoned. In fact, when God called Jeremiah to serve him as his prophet, his, his mouthpiece on earth, God told Jeremiah that he was going to have to make him a fortified city, an iron pillar, um, and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. In other words, God was going to have to protect Jeremiah and make him immovable because the message that he gave to Jeremiah to speak was wildly unpopular. Tell me whenever I need to stop. Thank you. Jeremiah lived and worked as a prophet when Nebuchadnezzar was yet just threatening God's people. It seemed inevitable that Judah was going to fall into Nebuchadnezzar's hands, but Jeremiah was walking the streets, telling the people not to put up a fight and to go willingly into Babylon. The authorities of Judah were preaching resistance, but Jeremiah was preaching surrender, serve the king of Babylon and live, he was telling the people. And Jeremiah paid dearly for merely repeating what God had told him to say. But through Jeremiah, we learned that it was God's intention, even before Babylon besieged Jerusalem, that Judah should be brought into exile 
by Babylon. It was even God's intention that the people should be emptied out and destroyed. It was God's intention that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah should serve in a pagan king's court. Things are not going contrary to God's plan in the opening scenes of Daniel, but precisely as he intended. He's allowing this evil thing to take place. But he's promised that he will not allow the exile to last forever. And out of the sorrow, he'll bring rejoicing. In case the examples littered throughout the Old Testament weren't enough for our dim minds and dull hearts, God the Father sent his son into exile in order to prove to us that this is his method. He sent his son to earth to be born as a child and live as one of us. And from there, Jesus voluntarily offered himself up as a perfect sacrifice for us and entered into the even greater exile of death. He died on our behalf so that being satisfied with the death of Jesus, God forgives us and considers us perfect in him despite our persistent sin. Through the death of Jesus Christ, we have hope. And in response to that hope, God instructs his people to live as Jesus lived. Not to abandon the broken places in which they live or to relish the thought that one day they will fly away to a home on God's celestial shore. But rather to invest in the welfare of the places where God has sent them. Whether that's Babylon or the United States. Because God does not intend to discard his creation, but to renew it from within through the redemption that comes when the cross is not spurned, but embraced. Daniel is answering the question, how then should we live? God created us as earthly creatures, and he intends to keep us that way. The story of salvation does not end with our departure from this broken earth but with our return to an earth that the saints have been working to renew for millennia and whose work God will complete on the day he has appointed for the end of time as we know it. God is committed to this physical chunk of rock and water that floats in the vast universe and to the human beings who inhabit it. And his commitment is made all the more evident through the incarnation of the Son of God. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God incarnate, is a human being. He's living somewhere in renewed flesh and blood this very second. Or as my children put it in their immature faith, when Jesus hugs us, his beard will be scratchy. Jesus is wonderful. I think we need to wrap it up. I got the signal from Bear. No? Keep going? That's what this means. This is wrap it up. This is keep going. I'm glad we're on the same page. (laughs) Jesus is an embodied human being who will live on this earth with us. And just as he has prepared a place for us in the house of our heavenly father, so also we participate with him in preparing a place on this earth where we will live together for eternity. And we do this by committing to the welfare of our world. In fact, this was the very instruction that God gave his people through the prophet Jeremiah as they were experiencing exile in Babylon. Jeremiah 29 reads, 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. You see, God's intention was that his people living in exile would put down roots and pursue the good of Babylon. And in our passage this morning, we are told the story of four men who are following God's instructions. These four men are the heroes of the book. They're Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. According to the qualities that Nebuchadnezzar sought in the men he took from Judah, these four men were apparently royalty, without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and, and competent to work for the king. They were, in other words, promising young people, and Nebuchadnezzar sought to make them promising young Babylonians. For three years, they were to be indoctrinated into the Babylonian language and culture. And in verse 7, we learned that they were even assigned new names, Babylonian names. No longer Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They are now Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. For the first seven verses, these four men were passive players in the story of Nebuchadnezzar's pillaging of Jerusalem. They were mentioned alongside the inanimate objects that were carted off by Nebuchadnezzar. They too were taken from Judah and put in Babylon. But in verse 8, we, verse eight we, we get our first note of resistance to this Babylonian agenda. Daniel and his friends refused to eat the food or drink the wine that the king provided and insisted on eating a diet of only vegetables and water instead. Now, typically when this story is told, much if not most of the discussion focuses on the food that they refused. Why did they refuse the meat and the wine, it's asked. And it's a question worth answering, and we will try to answer it even. But there's been so much focus on the food refused that we have failed to properly marvel at what they were willing to tolerate. One scholar points out that they were willing to accept an education in Babylonian language and culture, a political career within the Babylonian empire, and even new Babylonian names before they objected to the king's food. Three times they said yes before they said no. And this same scholar makes the point that they clearly weren't too scared to say no. Each of these men, as we will see in the coming weeks, are willing to risk their lives by saying no to something that violates their consciences. Daniel ends up being fed to the lions and the other three are thrown into a blazing furnace. They weren't lacking in principle. And yet they tolerated so much before they objected. And perhaps even more striking is the fact that God gave them great success in their program of indoctrination. In verse 17, we are told that God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. In other words, God gave these four men success in the very program that Nebuchadnezzar was using to turn God's people into good Babylonians. And not only did God give them learning and skill, but it suggested strongly 
that he also gave them great strength despite eating only vegetables while everyone else dined on meat. And it was God who caused these four men to stand out as 10 times better than all the other magicians and enchanters in Babylon, as verse 20 tells us. God did this. God was giving them success in a secular pagan world. And when we ask why that is, we find that Jeremiah is providing the answer. Because God wants to change the world through the investments that his people make in the communities where he has placed them. Even if those communities are completely secular. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, he commands in Jeremiah 29. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. This means that God wants his people to be involved in every aspect of the communities in which they live. If God would promote Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael to work in the court of Nebuchadnezzar, then Christians should absolutely pursue positions in politics and education and, and business. And we should be making, uh, we should be seeking to make Salem Springs in, in the greater Northwest Arkansas area like heaven on earth. Truly, this is the very thing Jesus taught us to ask for. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And it's the very act that Jesus will complete when he returns to make all things new. A marriage of heaven and earth. But he's given us the chance to get a head start and seeking the welfare of the city where he has placed us. And I know many of you are doing this. Brad Edwards serves on the, the health and wellness committee for the school district. Phyllis Thurman volunteers her time at the Mana Center to help provide for people in the community who are homeless or unemployed. The Wilsons have opened up a, a classical Christian school in our city. Chuck Hyde serves on the board for the Children's Advocacy Center in order to help children who've experienced abuse. Kelsey Howard is promoting the arts in Northwest Arkansas. Dave Elsie is on the board at Grace Haven Ministries, a place of support for families raising adopted children. And many of you are teachers or professors or administrators involved in forming not only the minds, but the character of both children and young adults in our community. Many of you are leading community Bible studies or simply caring for your neighbor next door. Several of you are raising the next generation of men and women who will love Jesus and live holy and just lives. I know that seven of you are serving as elders in your church. And many of you generously volunteer your time to make the ministries of First Presbyterian Church successful. These are the sorts of things that God has set us in this world to do. And I want to encourage you in the work that you are already doing. And to challenge you to invest in this city even more. Especially if you are not already doing so. There's no shortage of boards or nonprofits that are looking for volunteers or wise and godly counsel. As a church, we also want to provide even more opportunities to expand the kingdom of God in our midst. The session has spent the first half of 2020 articulating a vision for the outreach committee so that we can begin to explore ways in which we might seek the welfare of our city, not just monetarily, but in the flesh, just as Jesus pursued us in the flesh. We want to show up. We want our presence in our neighborhood and city to be felt in a tangible way. And I'm excited to see what comes out of this renewed focus for our outreach ministries at the church as we enter into 2021. You know, Asylum Springs certainly isn't Babylon. It's 
far from it. But it's where God has put us. And we, we want to pray for this place to seek its welfare so that the kingdom of God might grow in our midst and people might come to know the love and peace of Jesus Christ in this broken yet beautiful place. Ah, but we can't forget the food, <laughs> the meat and wine in our story. We can't forget that Daniel and his friends insisted on maintaining some distinction as they served in the king's court. They refused to eat the king's meat or drink his wine and committed to eating only vegetables and water. As I said earlier, this refusal inevitably raises questions about the significance of the meat and wine that they would refuse that over anything else. And several suggestions have been offered. An entire book has been written to promote a diet of vegetables and whole foods based on this refusal by Daniel and his friends, as if the reason they refused the meat and wine was because they were trying to show us how to trim our waistlines. It's true that many of us could probably afford to shed a few pounds and eat healthier, but that's not the point of Daniel 1 any more than Genesis 3 is warning us about snakes or fruit. More plausible suggestions have been made, but none of them fully explain the reason why Daniel and his friends refused the meat and wine. Some have suggested that the refusal to eat the meat was because it might have been offered to a Babylonian god before it was served to the four men. But there's abundant evidence to show that vegetables were offered to gods as well. So that doesn't quite work. Another suggestion was that the meat would not have been prepared according to the method prescribed by Jewish law and would therefore be considered unclean. And this is probably true, but that doesn't explain why Daniel and his friends refused to drink the king's wine as well. There are no laws about this preparation of wine. They could have drunk that in good conscience, but they refused it. So the law explanation is incomplete. Another explanation is that eating a king's food was a way of communicating allegiance to him, and Daniel and his friends wanted to signal their allegiance to another king, to God. But that message becomes muddled when Daniel and his friends then proceed to actually accept a position in the king's court and serve him faithfully in their positions. Why then did they refuse the meat and wine? And the precise answer probably lies in the minds and hearts of Daniel and his friends alone, which we unfortunately don't have access to. But verse eight gives us a hint about their motivations in refusing the meat and wine. Verse eight reads, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Daniel and his friends were concerned with defilement. They were concerned with maintaining their faith and their purity as they served in a pagan king's court. It was God's intention that they should serve in a pagan king's court. It was God who gave them success, after all, that they should even get to that point. And so they would have to tolerate a certain amount of Babylonian indoctrination. They'd have to put up with it in order that they might not lose themselves. But in order that they might not lose themselves, they chose something in order to remind themselves that they served God and not Nebuchadnezzar. It wasn't that the vegetables were more holy than the meat. The thing they chose was significant for its regularity. Three times a day, if not more, they were reminded of whose they were, to whom they belonged. Every time their stomach growled, they were reminded that one does not live by bread alone and that God is their sustenance and provider. It was probably not known 
that they were eating the vegetables and not the meat. If you look at the passage, you see that when Daniel approaches the chief of the eunuchs, he's terrified for his life. And he then goes to the steward and asks him to try it for 10 days. These men are terrified for their lives. They're not going to broadcast that they're giving these guys vegetables. They're terrified. It was probably a secret that only the four and the steward knew. And yet, it was their way of staying salty. God calls us into this world. And he sets us in cities in order to pursue their welfare. But we must not lose ourselves and our faith in Christ while serving in a pagan court, if you will. You are the salt of the world, Jesus says. But if you lose your saltiness, if you forget who you serve, then what good are you to the kingdom of God? There must be some distinction that we maintain while living, working, and serving in a foreign court. And I'm not going to prescribe that to you, because I think this is something that you must commit to and decide for yourself. One suggestion, which is what the the church has done for for centuries, is to structure the day. I said this in the children's sermon. At morning, lunch, and evening, to pray. Every, Every meal, reminding yourself. And when you go to bed at night, reminding yourself to whom you belong while serving in a pagan court. but you must decide what it is. Read the world around you. What refusal or discipline would remind you to whom you belong so that you remain salty in this world? The purpose of this is not to condemn the world or to harbor thoughts of judgment against those who do what you refuse or don't do what you've committed to doing, but to remind yourself regularly that you belong to someone else. And this isn't necessarily a matter of right versus wrong, but a way of reminding ourselves that we belong to Jesus the King, who has set up his kingdom in our midst in order to make this world new. Therefore, we seek the welfare of the city where he has sent us into exile, and we pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare we will find our welfare. But when he comes again, may we be found faithful undefiled by the court in which we have been working so that we may live for eternity in a world made new with Jesus and with one another and with all the saints who have gone before us. I look forward to seeing you there. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.